Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So welcome to The Word podcast with a bit of a difference this week because uh, Mark's away on his bucket and spade holiday down the East <laughs> Coast. I don't know if he's seeing a lot of bucket and spade because it's been boring down where I've been, so I don't know if it's been any different where he is. But anyway, uh, I'm joined by Alex Geld. Alex, are you all right? I, I am indeed. I'm very very excited to be to be surrogate Mark this week, actually. <laughs> Terrible responsibility to be a surrogate, Mark. (laughs) I'm sure Mark will be very cross when he comes back to find that we talked about the next subject without him. Okay. Because this is, you may remember, if you're listening last week, we we talked about, um, we were watching an old clip about a a group from the early 70s who went absolutely nowhere called Renya, really disappeared into total obscurity leaving behind them only a short TV documentary of a kind that's made by TV companies when they decide that the the journey of a of an up-and-coming band is just what the doctor ordered for 15 minutes or so. And I think there are loads of these films scattered around all over YouTube if you only knew where they where they were. But we're we're on our way to finding them. So we started with Renya last week were a bunch of rather puzzled-looking hippies signed to Transatlantic in the early 70s. And that's, um, that's led other people to send stuff in to us. And I'm particularly grateful to James Collingwood, who sent this, first of all, on the, on the Patreon, um, Patreon site. And then this morning, Simon Galloway independently sent the same thing, said, you've got to see this. And so we've both watched it, haven't we, Alex? We Which have. is the story of the group called Punch. The Great Punch. Punch. Tell people about Punch, Alex. Um, okay, so Punch can uh, be described as, or accurately be described, I think, as a struggling rock band from the 1970s who have quit their very normal jobs uh, in search of rock stardom. And um, 
it's it's about half an hour long this documentary and it charts them traipsing up and down very gray motorways really gray between rock hot spots such as Sunderland and Hull playing the working men's club circuit. The working men's clubs, which is... Apparently how you did it back in the day. Well, it is, you see. That's the thing that amazed me about it and that I was kind of saying to you this morning. The wonderful thing about these little films is the accidental social history that they deliver while focusing on the band. It's actually the stuff around the background that is really intriguing. And so they're, I think they're Bradford-based, aren't they? Uh, and, yes, yes, they were. And there are a bunch of guys, we were just talking about this this morning, I mean, they may even be in their early 30s, mightn't they? You know, they, yeah, they, no, they, they, they were. I, I think, yeah, early to mid-30s. I think the bass player was 29. He looked about 47. <laughs> but that, that, that's one of the things that, really, that struck me really early on, just how old they looked, how much yeah. older than they actually were. And... That was, yeah, that was quite, quite a thing. And um, I think the, the guitar, the lead guitarist was 31 or 32, and he was married with four children. This is it, because they're all, they're a bunch of regular guys. It doesn't happen anymore. That's the interesting thing. They're a bunch of regular blokes, you know, as you say, in the late 20s, early 30s. They'd had, they, they probably had all left school at 15, because you could do that at that point. And and I would guess none of them had been to college or university. And they, they'd gone into manual jobs in engineering or working in factories or whatever. And from time to time, they jacked in these jobs to have a go at various bands to see if they could make it, you know, because they always felt being professional well, this, was what they is, needed to do. This is what really struck me as interesting. So they were doing this thing in, 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 in on the hunt for stardom. They wanted to in inverted commas, make it. But it struck me, the overriding thing that struck me was they didn't really know how they were going to make it or what they were going to make it with because they were going around these clubs just playing bog standard covers around Absolutely. working. They didn't even have any songs. Now, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't, you know, a successful band have a thing? A mi- they, they have a mission, don't they? But I think that's a later thing. I think that just indicates how much of a social document this, this film about Punch is. Because it, that wasn't plain at the time that they were, you know, putting, you know, because this is 1976, so they probably formed it in 1971 or something like that. And it wasn't played that that's what they did. Well, that's what you did. And what's interesting about them is they can play, Alex, can't they? They can sing, can't they? Very competent, yeah. No they're, complaints they're, there at all. No complaints at all. But they are undoubtedly really unoriginal and really uninspiring. But they go and they play working men's clubs. And, and you forget that circuit used to exist not that long ago. And, you know, particularly in the north of England, in Scotland as well, I suppose, uh, you know, that the, there would be these huge, great barn-type buildings, which every evening of the week would be filled with, uh, you know, lone drinkers sitting at, sitting at tables on their own, drinking subsidised cheap beer, because that's why you went to these social clubs, because the beer was cheap. And to give them something to look at, there would be some kind of turn on the stage. It would be a comedian or a dancer or the members of Punch doing their, doing their numbers. And it's just an extraordinary sight to see in this film. 
I can't recommend it too highly because also the cameras follow them back into the dressing room after their sets. One guy has broken a string, hasn't he? And they have a bit of a... They have an extraordinary set too in the dressing room because they they the gloves kind of come off. You know, they're getting really cross and embarrassed because TV cameras are there. But the strongest word that they use in the two-minute altercation, and they use this word repeatedly, is bloody. It's no bloody good to you bloody telling me this. <laughs> now we've bloody come off stage. You think, at what stage does does somebody reach for the F-bomb? Or so something? much repressed masculinity. In they don't room. do that at all. Because that's, again, a reminder. There was far less public... Profanity in those days. You just didn't do that. You know what I mean? It was a, it was a kind of invitation to fight if somebody started talking like that in those days. The lack of an end game really threw me though, because you know you'd think if a band's starting out and has any idea of kind of what they want to do with it, they want to release a single or they want to make an album. These guys had no idea what they wanted. Well, no, that they did to happen. They wanted to get on Opportunity, Opportunity Knox, which was, they do in the film. Yeah, they do, but that, that was a meet, that wasn't, a, you know, that, that, that was kind of an incidental thing for them, though, surely, wasn't it? That no, was, no, yeah. Opportunity Knox made a number of people. Opportunity really? Knox made Mary Hopkin. Mary Hopkin, those were the days. That all happened because of Opportunity Knox. You know, there was, Alex, this is going to come as a, as a shock to your your young ears <laughs> but but for probably at least a year and i'm sure older listeners will will back me up in this at least a year in the 70s opportunity knocks was one every week because you had to keep coming back if you won you came back and you competed against the new you know candidates and so forth it was won repeatedly for the best part of a year by a man called Tony Holland. And do you know what Tony Holland did, Alex? You probably think he, he had a concept album or he had a you know, really artful comedy set or something like that. No, I'll tell you what Tony Holland did. He was Tony Holland, the musical muscle man. And so basically, Tony Holland would appear on stage wearing a pair of leopard skin budgie smugglers and he, his torso would be oiled, and then he would flex and flex the muscles in time to wheels by the string alongs. Wow. He did the same thing every week for an entire series. Won it week after week after week. He became famous. So these programs made people. So if you're a punch... If you were given a choice between winning on Opportunity Knocks or getting a deal with EMI, you'd have taken winning on Opportunity Knocks every time. Because, you know, because how many people were watching ITV in 1976? 20 million people, at least. You know, so it was, it was your passport out of obscurity, if you could get out there. Of course, there's a wonderful scene in the film where they do their audition for the Opportunity Knocks um, what a brutal TV team, it has to be said. All TV teams are brutal. And they all, they came from the department of TV that we used to call, I don't think anybody calls it this anymore, Ellie. Ellie. Oh, he works for Ellie. Just means light entertainment. 
And if you ever got, if you ever got three people from Light Entertainment, I guarantee you, one will be wearing a cardigan. One would be a lady with terrifying specs smoking very heavily all the way through it. And one would be rather camp wearing a sailor cap. All three, all three re- represented in this little panel. <laughs> Honestly, if you watch nothing else, watch the bit where Punch auditioned for the Opportunity Knox, you know, pellet bureau and, uh, and, uh, and are told what shirts to wear. When they when they return for the recording, isn't the singer told at one point? Does uh, one of the producers say, uh, you, "You know, you know that thing you do with your, your lip, just don't, don't do it." Yes. <laughs> you see, that's the kind of advice nobody gives bands anymore, Alex. <laughs> yes. And I think I think we're all the poorer for it, actually. But anyway, I tell you what, we'll post the link. It's all on YouTube. Uh, we'll post the link to this underneath this, and uh, do not well miss half this. An hour of your time. It really is worth half an hour of your time, particularly if you're if you're around during the seventies. You know, it'll be a, a reminder. You know, the waft of embassy smoke will will come out of your computer when you when you play that thing. And if you know of any other, seriously, these any other films, little little kind of slice of life films made about bands on their way up, particularly bands who didn't make it, because those are the interesting ones, you know what I mean? There probably are these kind of films from all over the world, all over a long period of time. So we've had Renya, we've had Punch, uh, you know, thanks to the people who nominated them. But if you've got anything you think would uh, would bear that kind of scrutiny... Let us know. Because you know what I'm thinking, Alex? I'm thinking, I'm ambitious about this. I think this could be built up into a big thing. And eventually, it's a weekend-long festival at the NFT of, of films about failed bands. The Don't be brilliant. The Great White Buffalo Festival, that's what you call it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I cannot wait. Send them in if you've got nominations. Send them in. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, Alex, this week's been dominated by the news of Icon of the Seas, which is, of course, as you'll be aware, the world's largest cruise liner is about to to go on its first, on its maiden voyage. Is that right, Alex? It is very exciting, and it is absolutely gargantuan. It's about a million. The, the, the gauge is always the Titanic, isn't it? So that, that's, it's always X times bigger than the Titanic, and I think this one is five or six times at least bigger, which is pretty big. Do they, do they actually say, have I got this right? Don't they say it's the world's largest ship? Not just cruise line. No, it won't be. Oh, not? Yeah, there are, there, are, there are various super tankers that are larger, oh, I suppose there would be. There would be. They, do they count? I don't know. Um, but it's, it's extraordinary because this thing, it kind of looks like, it looks, it looks like a up, kind of plastic it, so like, toy that you might buy. You know, I have two granddaughters. And it's the kind of thing that if I turned up with that as a large plastic toy on their birthdays, they would they would absolutely love it because it it looks kind of artificial, doesn't it? You know what I mean? It, it does. It looks kind of I don't, fun, funly grotesque. Is that even a phrase? I, I don't even know. But and I, I I wouldn't want you see if I was getting on a boat, mm. 
and I was going away for two weeks. It wouldn't be that. I don't want a boat to look like fun. I I, I want a boat to concentrate on the primary job, which is staying afloat and delivering me back at the end of the Everything on this boat will be designed to stimulate the senses into some kind of frenzy. So, uh, yeah, you want to avoid that one at all. It looks, it's got something like seven water slides, hasn't it? Something like that. Yeah, the largest pool at sea, I think it's something like 30 decks tall. So, for for a comparison, the largest one I've been on, it was 19 or 20 decks tall, and it was taller than Nelson's Column. So, they're pr- yeah, they're pretty high. This one is not far short of half a kilometre long, apparently. Um, I think it houses something like 7,000 passengers. There'll be three or 4,000 crew to to, um, to be working for those passengers as well. Uh, it's got rock climbing walls and theatres and countless bars and restaurants. I'm not working for them, by the way. Um, and it just, yeah, it's it, it's it's a city at sea. It's a, Is there any part of you as an old cruise hand that looks at this and thinks, oh, I ought to be there? I feel I, you know, I'm not a proper cruise person unless I've been on the world's largest cruise ship. No, I feel like I've got my mileage from it. To be honest with you, uh, I, you know, I just look impressive, and I can, I, I can totally swallow why people would want to take a week long holiday on it. But to live on for three months, no, thank you very much. So listen, you've been many times on cruise ships. Uh-huh. I've never been on a cruise ship. Mark Allen's been on a cruise ship. Um, I want you to tell me what are the things that I would find most surprising about the cruise ship experience that you can, you can tell me about because you're, you, you've been there. Five things you might find most surprising about the cruise ship experience. Uh, well, first of all, it doesn't move. So if you, um, if you suffer from seasickness, um, and that's a, that's a problem. Um, it's not an issue on a cruise ship because the stabilizers are so vast and so massive. It just cuts through the ocean like butter. It's astonishing. It just stays uh, you don't even know you're on a moving platform unless really? you look out the window. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Um, two, oh gosh, uh, marriage means nothing on a cruise ship. <laughs> 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 Is this good news for you, Alex, or uh, bad news? Well, you know, it, 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 I suppose it could be either, really, depending <laughs> on... The circs, the circs, but, um, so, 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 do you think people get down, down the gangplank and they just fling off their their wedding rings? Effectively, they're they're full of some fancy feet. Yeah, what they call ship life is basically people turning into animals, and that's just what those things do. Apparently, I don't know why, but it's yes, it's an absolute free fall. Um, number three is uh, oh gosh, the drinking, the drinking. Well. Drinking never stops. Um, you, the drinking, that, that's, it all revolves around drinking. Everything on those things re- revolves around consuming alcohol. And um, everybody is a different level of drunk all the time. Well, regardless of the time of day. So if you bump into somebody at past 10 in the morning. Oh, you'll get people in the observation lounge jar um, bar knocking back old fashions at nine o'clock in the morning. I'll be up there with my laptop and my coffee, and I'll be obviously I'll see people there propping it up, supping away on their third one. Oh God! You know, it's it's like going to Vegas, going to the casinos. People go on these things to drink because it, it, the whole thing centres around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do um, you pay for the drinks? Uh, you can get packages which make it all inclusive, which make it all right. readable. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, you do, you do pay for the drinks. And if you're not drinking, presumably you're eating. Yeah. You are eating a lot. In fact, uh, on one of the ships, I used to have two dinners a night because um, 
because I think the sheer abundance of the food available, it's made me doubly hungry. So does that make sense? It doesn't really make sense, does it? But I did. I had two dinners a night on, on one of the ships. Right, um, right. I didn't seem to put on any weight, luckily. Which is no, we, we've noticed that. We've yeah. noticed that. <clears throat> what advice would you give to anybody considering going on a cruise? What advice would I give? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> hmm. Well, uh, as, a, as, a, as a passenger, I presume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not as someone who's working on Not a musician. Yeah, okay, right. It's a totally different thing. Yeah. Um, as a passenger, I would say pace yourself. Get off the ship. See things that aren't... Stay away from the bars as much as you can. And, you know, um, make, <laughs> Pretty the most, impossible. make the most of your excursion opportunities. Oh. Do the hand gliding. Go scuba diving. You know, um, get off the damn thing. That's that's the best piece of advice I could possibly offer. Is get off, the, get off the cruise ship. And also, well, be, be nice to your cabin steward. Because those guys, they work eight days a week. I bet. Uh, for 11 months or something ridiculous like that no days off um, really yeah and they are the most pleasant people you can ever ever meet and uh they get a lot of flack so if you have a cabin steward which you will yeah be nice to them and, and tip generously that's what i would say no quite quite right quite right so that's the what's he called the icon of the sheet out of the seas, icon um, of the seas yeah it, it's out there if you want to make a booking um so i've been reading i've been reading a fantastic book this week alex which is a biography of bing crosby in the 1930s written by a guy called gary giddings which is absolutely fantastic um because it's it's an absolute education in what it tells you not so much about bing crosby although that's interesting but what it tells you about the entertainment business and the music business in the 1930s. Oh, okay. And uh, it just struck me, you know, what's gone on in the music business in the UK, well, in, in, in the Western world in the last 10 years or whatever, slightly longer than that now, isn't it? You know, the, the end of the sale of records and so forth and the massive increase in prices people charge for live entertainment. Uh, and streaming and all these kind of things. We talk about this as if it's kind of a unique event, whereas actually if you look back at the music business throughout the 20th century, similar upheavals were happening at kind of seven-year intervals pretty much, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. the old way of doing things was being completely thrown out and being replaced by another one. I mean, for like the wax cylinders, the sheet music, to the well, and yeah, but a bit more than that. Um, I mean, not just the kind of carriers, but uh, you know, so Bing Crosby comes up in the 1920s, really, um, and he's he's a member of a of a trio called the Rhythm Boys, and he's the kind of star. Can I just ask what Bing is short for? I'm very glad you asked me that. Oh. It's not short for anything. Oh, really? It's just a childhood name that, that he just continued to use. And, of course, it proved to be the most wonderful calling card because it's an utterly unique word. You know, you, you, you can only say it one way. It's not short for anything, <laughs> you know, and it meant as much or as little to a listener in Japan as it meant to somebody in, in Barnsley. <laughs> it's just the word Bing. And it was also, it had that kind of uh, 
that that kind of euphonious relation to to the word ring, I suppose. You know what I mean? It, that it, they it do, sounds it's funny, musical. It? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So yeah, his real name is Harry. Um, okay, but he, but he was always spectacular. <laughs> he was always Bing. Cliff Richards a Harry as well, isn't he? Cliff Richards a Harry. Yes, absolutely. Harry's in rock. Harry Styles, of course. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Um... And um, so he comes up in the 1920s, and and the, the the record business flourishes at the end of the 1920s. And if you go back and look at loads of classic jazz and blues recordings from between the wars, they very often come from 1928 or 1929, because that was the really brief boom of the record business before the slump came in the 1930s and nobody could afford record players and nobody could afford records. And so into the place of the record business came the radio. And so the radio penetrated far further than records ever had because the beauty of the radio is you invested in a set and once you'd invested in a set, it didn't cost you anything at all. You didn't have to buy anything to feed it. And so radio went into every home in the United States. And, you know, as soon as electricity got there, it went to every distant homestead up the, up the, the end of a long dirt road in rural America. And what it provided is what radio always provides. The thing that people always want from radio is company. It's just the thing they turn on and it's somebody in the room with them. And so Bing was a radio star. He was this voice that came off the radio. At first he didn't speak, he just sang. He'd start in programs and they knew it was Bing Crosby program, but you'd never hear him speak. You'd only hear him sing. And then when he moved into films, they made a, a key part of all the films that there would be a bit where you would hear Bing sing and the girl would hear the noise and go, oh, Bing, that's Bing, where is he? And then go chasing off to find him and eventually clap eyes on Bing. So seeing him was something that took place 
ages after hearing him. You know what I mean? And so okay. all these things were just being turned upside down all the time. And so, you know, the, the radio dominated the early 30s. And then records started coming back. But the way that people made money in the music business was just changing all the time. So in radio, you made the money out of a sponsor. You know, say you've got a soap manufacturer or whatever, you know, they would pay you $5,000 a program to, you know, if you're Bing Crosby, to broadcast all across the United States on a, on a Saturday night for 15 minutes or whatever. Uh, and you did that instead of doing gigs. Although it's interesting, I don't know if you got this picture of a car that I sent earlier. He, he first of all, in the 20s, he toured with the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. And Paul Whiteman was, was America's most popular kind of light jazz performer of the 20s. Huge star, big kind of orchestra band. <laughs> I think in 1929 or 30, they, they go, they travel from the East Coast to the West to go to Hollywood to make a film and this is the way they travel. So it's a large orchestra, including Bing Crosby and his two mates and the Rhythm Boys. Yeah. And uh, they go across America in a specially, um, especially um, chartered train, okay? Wouldn't you love to do that? Charter a train, okay? Fabulous, great, fabulous, great steam engine. And then you got chartering a train before. Well, you could do it. Oh, you still you still do it now. I think really costs a lot of money. But anyway, this one had six carriages. It took twelve days to go across the United States because it was crisscrossing. It was stopping at loads of places. I suppose it's quite a big deal in the states though, because there's very little railroad, isn't there? Well, yeah. And also, this is before before flying had become a particularly. Massive. Big thing. And also Bing Crosby never liked flying. Um, but they, they would occasionally, they would stop in cities and they would perform, often performing off the back of the train as people gathered round. Imagine this. Okay, six carriages. Three of them are occupied by the band and so forth. Two by luggage. And the final one, Alex, number six, contains... Paul Whiteman's pride and joy, his brand spanking new, fabulous, gleaming, immensely enviable Duesenberg convertible car. So he was taking his car across the United States wow, in order to be able to drive it in Hollywood. And oh, I'm wow. looking. I'm looking at a picture of it now, and I think I'm not surprised at all. Duesenberg. Now, Duesenberg make very, very high-end guitars as well. I'm just wondering whether... Oh, well, is it they probably taken the name from... That's interesting. They probably borrowed the name because I don't know whether... I'm sure there'll sure there be petrol heads listening to this who could tell us whether whether Duesenbergs are still made. I think they're probably not, you know. But it's probably one of those names like, I don't know, a you know, well, of, of elegance uh, of a particular time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it applies with uh, automotive engineering, doesn't it? And uh, <laughs> isn't that indicative of of of, of pre, you know of, of a time gone by as well? Somebody got so excited about driving their motor that they stuck it on the train. Take it on a train? Well, you couldn't drive across. Clearly not. Uh, you know, but you wanted to have it there to show off to people. 
yeah, and yeah. probably to pick up girls, I would imagine, you know, driving around in Hollywood. You're the big I am. You're Paul Whiteman. You're the kind of Robbie Williams of your day. And you're driving in this fabulous convertible car down uh, down Sunset Boulevard, you know, to the, to the immense admiration of everybody, of everybody watching you. But it's absolutely extraordinary story. The story, uh, the story of Bing Crosby in the thirties. If anybody's ever interested in that kind of thing, it's written by Gary Giddings, and I can't recommend it too highly. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Another thing about Bing Crosby, he didn't really want to be a solo. He preferred to be with the Rhythm Boys, and it was just inevitable in the end. He had to, he had to go solo, but he made a whole act out of how modest he was. For instance, in, in his films, he would never allow his name to be above the title. Partly self-preservation, because if it went wrong, he wouldn't get the blame. But also, <laughs> also partly it was immodest for him to be the great I am, to be, you know, Bing Crosby in Santo. Santo featuring Bing Crosby in Santo and Santo and Santo. And uh, and there's various people's comments about his his personality. You know that he was he was the great everyman figure for everybody in America. Everybody in America loved Bing. They all felt that if Bing moved in next door, everything would be absolutely fine. And if I went for a round of golf with Bing, we would really get on. So what you're saying uh, is Bing Crosby is the previous generation's Dave Grohl, essentially. Or Bruce Springsteen, or you or know, loads of yeah. loads of people who've occupied that. Can, yeah, okay, but I think that's not the truth. You know that they're they, they and it, it's a very American thing, actually. That is that ordinariness is is a kind of much a prized virtue in America, in a way that isn't really in the UK. But anyway, um, and Archie Shaw, the band leader, is a really good quote in the book. He says, Bing is no more Bing than Bogart is Bogart. And, you know, so Humphrey Bogart was a kind of, this kind of made up character, you know, this stoical, stoical suffering, long suffering, tough guy. You know, it was a creation. So it was partly, the, the, partly the based public, on every Bogart, but it. Public Bing is a creation of his own doing. It, it's a creation. Interesting. And, um, and they, I just made me think, is that something you can apply to so many solo artists, you know, that they can, they can create a person who isn't necessarily themselves, but they can get away with doing it if they're alone on stage or if they're in charge. Whereas in a group, you can't quite do that, can you? So that was my point, you know. That's a, that's a really good one, actually. In a group, you can't do it because everybody knows you so well. They see yeah. through it, you know, whereas you've got no one really to account to if you're a solo artist and you are the de facto boss, have you? I mean, you could say, that you know, arguable whether McCartney's created a construct, you know, a, a, a version of McCartney that he puts out there to the Th public. That's a really good point. It's the, That's the, a really the, good point. He couldn't get away was saying the things he says on stage. Not that he says anything particularly controversial or outlandish or anything. But if, well, obviously, they're dead and, you know, whatever. You know, but if he was on that stage with John, George and Ringo, it's a different person, isn't it? Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? 
it just it kind of restricts people a bit, doesn't it, in in what they can say because they're saying it on behalf of the group rather than saying it on behalf of themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, if, if you've known these people since childhood and you're spending 12 hours a day with them in the smallish room mode of transport, they're going to know every little thing about you. And if you start being disingenuous, in, you know, um, it's going to create tension, isn't it? There's going to be a long tail to that. So, yeah, a group, I think, keeps you tethered a little bit. Um, as long as it is a group, though, I can't remember who we were talking about this in, in, uh, about Bruce Springsteen. Um, well, the other way. a bit different, isn't it? Because he is the de facto. He is boss. the boss. Because yeah. that's the thing. That, that, that was that's where that's where that's where the great the joke the joke is on the boss, but it's also deadly serious. Yeah, I'm in charge. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> it's because what I say goes, and I I'm not afraid to bollock any of you. As I, I don't think you know Mick Jagger might be the leader of the Rolling Stones. I don't think he'll bollock anybody. No, no. another one. I, I, I don't think he will. I don't think he's in that position. He's, he'll have to josh him along. Well, I've always got the impression that Mick sort of answers the key to a certain degree. And again, you know, you've got that thing where they've all, they all came from exactly the same place. Yeah. So they, they came together as a group, whereas Springsteen from the start, there was a degree of separation. Which well, no, out. they all came from very similar. They're all kind of equally unknown. But it was just the interesting thing was to turn around at the age of whatever he was, 22, and go, I'm the boss now. Yeah, I'm yeah. in charge of what I say goes. And if I don't like the keyboard player, I'm going to fire him. And if yeah. I don't like what he's playing, I'm going to tell him. But didn't Springsteen have a card under his sleeve, though, in the sense that he was the, you know, he, he was the big cheese of the local area? And, you know, he had... I do. It wasn't that much. Not at this stage. No, not when he started doing that. He did that thing of behaving as if they were really big before they were really big. Yeah. You know, which takes a lot of nerve to do that. And I think a lot of people, I mean, if you you go back and look at Rolling Rolling Stones in the early days, I I always think the most amazing thing is that Mick Jagger stood up to be Mick Jagger before he was Mick Jagger. You know what I mean? He was just this guy from Dartford. (laughs) He just had the nerve <laughs> to, to stand up in front of them and pretend that he was the biggest rock star in the world. It takes what, what extraordinary happened, nerve. Because, like, you know, come on here, Rolling Stones, he still wasn't Mick, was he? No, but if you look at him, he looks... If you look at his really early things, not fade away and stuff like that, you know, it's authority, absolute confidence in dealing with a TV camera. It's just quite a remarkable thing, I think, yeah. really. And then I think it's one of the most remarkable properties. So yes, solo performers, they get away with a level of pretension that, that, that probably wouldn't be allowed if it was, uh, if it was in a group. So, you know, Bing Crosby left the rhythm boys and the rest is history. So I can't remember how we got to this, Alex, but I was thinking about, oh, I'll tell you what I was thinking about. I was thinking about Cat Stevens playing Glastonbury the other week. It's a big moment, wasn't it, for a lot of people that, it appears so. It appears yeah. so. Uh, you know, a lot of, he's one of those things that, you know, I, my, one of my daughters went and I said, uh, did you, she said, I enjoyed, uh, Cat Stevens. I said, did you know those songs? She said, well, I knew the ones that have been nicked. 
<laughs> so, you know, if you've grown up, you know, you know, she's well, I was always, 30, you know, whatever. Fa- father and son, of course, I knew that. And, you know, but... It's morning as brown. It's all that stuff people sung in school assemblies, isn't it? I'm going to confess something. I did not know that was Cat Stevens. Well, there you go. No, I do. Gosh, wow. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I was, remember the days of the old school yard, all the, all those kind of things. And father and son, to get to the point here, is the one that really you know rings rings a bell with people, yeah, isn't although it? Although yeah. it was, I have to say that it was the boys' own version that I I heard first. <laughs> oh right, well, the, it's their voices I hear when I when I oh, when really? first well, think of it. Then I have, I have to make a little bit of effort to morph that into Cat Stevens. Right, right. Head. So it's one of many songs about the advice given by fathers to sons. Yeah. I don't know if anybody does that anymore in terms in terms of writing a song that contains the line. So many rock and roll songs contain that line, as my daddy said to me. Isn't that quite... <laughs> my daddy funny? said, son, don't ever do so-and-so, you know? I feel like that's, that's, that's more an American thing than a British thing. I, I, I feel like in Britain... Well, it's a country song thing, I think that is. Yeah. You know? um, but um, it was... Uh, well, it's, it's also David Bowie's Cooks, which is... Um, it's sung to his son, isn't it? Who uh, was born as he was making that record. Um, you know, if you stay with us, you're going to be pretty cookie too. Don't put pick fights with the bullies and the cads because I'm not much good at punching other people's dads. Not when he was Grace's lyrics. <laughs> but it's all right, go, go away with it in there. So, Oasis is Little James as well. They're probably the less said about that one, the better. Oh, right, it right. It plasticine with trampoline. Oh, uh, it would. Yeah. It would. And I was just wondering, Alex, is there, are there things your dad says? Well, yeah, there are. And um, actually, it was spending time away, um, lots of time away, years and years and years, that really got me thinking about this, actually. Um, because... So my dad's heritage is, is Austrian and um, and he his parents came over, I think, just before the war broke out. We don't really know what happened because that generation didn't talk about it. So there's a lot of mystery there. But there's his first, what I'm getting to is the, his first language is uh, is Österreicher Deutsch. Mm-hmm. He didn't learn to speak English until he was five. And so he's got a very neutral accent for a start, which for someone from Birmingham is very unusual. Thankfully, he passed it to his son, dodged a bullet there. And um, the second thing is he's got a very unique turn of phrase, which I didn't realise until I, I kind of, I left home and and I'd come back and I'd hear him say these things and they think seem really odd to me. Um, and one of these things is when he picks up the phone, he goes, hello to you. Oh, and I've really? never heard anybody No, that's very unusual. Now, I was dating um, a lovely girl from Austria for a little bit, and uh, I asked her about this this one time, and she went, well, actually, the greeting in Austria is is Grüß dich, which literally means greetings to you. So he's obviously... And it's the same thing? And yeah. it and yeah. it. Um, yeah. So that's that's one of the things he says. But he's got all these little quirks like that. So I mean, it's less about kind of what he says to me and kind of what he says in everyday life. Does he give you any advice? See, because I've got I've got a theory about father's advice mm-hmm. because I listen to a lot of it while appearing not to listen to a lot of it, <laughs> and I've also I've also dispensed a lot of it 
mm-hmm. while apparently not being listened to at all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and my you know it's many years since my father died, um, but I can he taught me to drive. Okay, which is a very kind of you know there's a, it's a very conflict making situation. And your father teaches you to drive because all the all the kind of antipathies come out. But I realized after he died, I could remember every single thing he told me while teaching me to drive. Every single thing had gone in and lodged in the back of my mind. Wow. And I think, I think that's the fate of fathers, to be only paid attention to when they're no longer there. Oh. <laughs> but listen... That's, there are worse things than that, you know, <laughs> because, you know, if you ever, if you ever say anything to you, any of your children, you know, is generally speaking, the more heartfelt it is, the less willing they are to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the they, uh, there, isn't there's it? just, even when they're in their thirties or whatever. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, and I was trying to think about the thing I always say nowadays, and I realized the thing I always say to my children is that I begin sentences with the following expression: "Clearly, I know nothing." That's a but, good way to start. That's but, a good way to start, actually. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if it is. It makes me feel better because it kind of fends off the obvious, the obvious objection. Things have changed, you know, or whatever. This is different, whatever. So if you started with clearly, I know nothing, but just hear me out, you know, for the rest of this sentence. Right? Okay, I'm not. I'm not going to hang around to argue about it. You know, you'll take away that that information, and you'll either do something with it or you won't. But anyway. That's uh, things that fathers say. So if anybody's got any suggestions, things their dads say or things that they have said as a dad or or songs, uh, you know, carrying advice from fathers that they've found particularly useful, we'd be grateful to hear about it, wouldn't we, Alex? We uh, yes. And, um, you know, what's the, what's the email if people want to get in touch, Alex? Do you know that? The email is wiye.london at gmail.com. There you go. Um, and as ever, can I just stress once more, however you're listening to this, if you've got any means of recommending it, you know, um, praising it, voting for it, whatever, please do so if you haven't done so already because these things do make a difference. You know, they kind of add up over a long period of time. Every little Um, helps. Every little helps. helps. And uh, if you'd like to join our uh, our Patreon friends, the place to find out about it is patreon.com slash word in your ear. Uh, And you find out the details of how you might get involved. There'll be, uh, there's going to be an announcement about another patron event, isn't there, Alex? Is going to there be, is, yes, it's going to be coming soon. And coming soon. And some public events too. Absolutely. And some public events as well. So there's, there's lots going on. Uh, thanks very much for listening. And, uh, 
And we'll be back with you next week, probably rejoined, refreshed uh, from his seaside holiday with a full bucket and spades. <laughs> Mark, Mark Allen. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.